Those birds were enjoying the late afternoon around Lewa House, set on a high hilltop in northern Kenya, and that is where we're heading today in the first of our two-part interview. Welcome to the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safari Show, the world's first and only podcast on wildlife safaris worldwide and sustainable tourism. This show's for everyone interested in ecotourism, travel in the natural world, and adventures to our planet's wild places. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Banner, biologist and director of the travel company Wildlife and Wilderness, providing high-quality holiday experiences to thousands of clients for almost 25 years. If you're planning a safari or want to get in touch, then do drop us an email to podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com or visit our website at wildlifewilderness.com. In East Africa, Mount Kenya almost straddles the equator with its eternal snows. A little to the north is an upland wilderness area, and this is where both Lewa Wildlife Conservancy and Lewa House are located. Surrounded by majestic scenery, Lewa House is home to fourth generation Kenyan, Sophie, and her husband, Callum McFarlane, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome them both to the show today. Inevitably, we immediately got chatting about the weather thanks to a video Callum sent to me just a short time before we spoke. So let's jump right on in and catch up with the rains down in Africa. A thousand millimeters of rain since November, which is twice what we get on a normal year. Yep. And we've still got another rainy season to come. Wow. So we've just had exceptionally heavy rains since November. It went all the way through November, all the way through um, December, um, January, February. We had a bit of rain then. Um, then the end of March, it picked up again. Um, April, we had rain and we're still getting it now. In fact, I think so few are looking at the weather forecast. We're meant to have a lot of rain over the weekend, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah. So no, the... Um... Yeah, so basically, it's it's um, it's sort of saying that uh, um, we're meant to be coming into our dry season now, um, technically, May. But you're still looking very green out there as well. We're still looking very green. You know, this is always our favorite time of year, um, May time, because you've had the rains in April. Yeah, you might catch a little bit of rain, but everything is so green. The flowers are still going for it. All the baby animals are still charging around. You know, it's it's um, it's phenomenal. Great, great. Well, I'd like to thank you both for coming to um, to come on the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safari Show today um, to talk about Lewa. Um, Sophie, let's start with you, perhaps. Um, your grandfather must have been somewhat of a visionary to allow the freedom of the wildlife on his ranch land all that time ago. Yes, it was It was actually my great-grandfather. So Sorry, great-grandfather. 100 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, but he, I think that makes it even more amazing because he, in the 1920s, when this wildlife was just everywhere and it was like a Garden of Eden and nobody could really get their heads around it, he uh, he appreciated even then that that this was a very special uh, special ecosystem, and yeah. So other settlers came in and and came in with a very Victorian attitude about it really imposing themselves on the landscape, and he uh, he came in with a much more adaptable attitude, which was um, I'm the newcomer here, and he was just much more humble about it. He sought local knowledge. He um and he realized he had to leave space for the for will for the wilderness and he loved he loved the wilderness so whereas other people were frightened of it and wanted to tame it he uh he yeah he really embraced it so we're very lucky as a family to to have that as a legacy absolutely and yeah. i think all that happens here today is very much a, a reflection of that do you have any idea of wildlife numbers from that time were there any censuses done of the number of species because of course africa's seen dramatic declines in the last 50 years or 20 years even, but 
100 years or so ago now. Is there any idea of what the numbers were like of different species? Not really, but I think there's been a big shift. So, you know, when he first came here, our our spring here had been completely shot out of elephant, probably in the 1890s. So the elephants probably, you know, enjoyed this this water here. And it, and it's, you know, it's, it's the biggest water for, for a long distance, really, from the Wasanira River. So, but he, he came here. So in, in 1920, there was not an elephant in sight. There wasn't a rhino. But I think, for example, there was a huge zebra migration that went from the grasslands down here to what is now all the wheat fields on, on Mount Kenya. Yep. Those were all grasslands. And I think there was a big zebra migration that, that went between the low country down here and then up higher altitude when this was really dry. So, I, I th yeah, I think things have shifted. I think certain species have, have increased in that 100 years, mainly due to human population pressure. I would, yeah, as a generalisation um and uh yeah and then other species have yeah have, have decreased so um so we don't have the zebra numbers definitely that people spoke about you know then yeah um but we've got decent decent zebra numbers but um it does it does concern me that things we you know i've grown up with as plains game and you take it maybe take it for granted a bit you sort of look at them now and think gosh it doesn't matter whether it's on, on the endangered list or not. Actually, all these animals are are threatened just simply by the, the human population expansion. In the surrounding areas, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's quite an interesting book called The Year of the Lion uh, by a chap called, is it Gerald Hanley, Sophie? Yeah, Gerald Hanley. Is that Ger Gerald Hanley, yeah. I think it is? And he was a, he came out from the UK as a young man and it was must have been around about the 1920s. And um, he talks of this, um, he writes, because he, he lived in this area um, and worked some of these farms as a young sort of farmhand. He talks about this huge zebra migration. And he says they used to have a competition every year where they would ride out and see how many zebra they could shoot in one day. You know, and he just said, because there were so many of them, you never thought it would end. You know, you never thought it would end. Incredible. And then slowly people realized that the Mount Kenya is very fertile soil and the fences went up wheat farms started to be put in and before you know it that migration stops you know um so it's quite it's quite interesting reading those old reports i think in 1975 so much more recently but 1975 they did a wildlife survey in kenya and there were um, i think 20,000 black rhino yeah in kenya and then in 1985 when they repeated the survey there were only 320. yes i know i've read something similar starting with about 20,000. And, and that would actually have been way down. Yeah, 20, in 1975, there were 20,000. What there was, yeah. the numbers in, in 1920s must have been huge. Yeah. Wasn't there that the first cricket match in Nairobi was stopped because a rhino came onto the pitch or something, wasn't it? Yes, and there, and there were hunters actually employed to clear land of rhino. Um, people couldn't go in and, and, and start... Uh, cultivating and turning it into farmland because behind every bush there was another bloody rhino. <laughs> so Are you still uh, saying people that today? were I literally hope not. paid to. Yeah, no. yeah. But I we, mean, we have I'm our just... moments. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, on that drive they... in, that drive that I did in just now, I, there were fifteen wow. rhino. Wow. All spread along the road, yeah. you know, and what one of them is called Floppy, who's a little bit 
stroppy. <laughs> um, and it's particularly when there's late, late ladies around, he's got one ear that's bent over slightly. And uh, we had to slowly ease our way past him because he was blocking the road and sometimes has a go at the car. But um, yeah, no, sometimes th that phrase is muttered. <laughs> Sorry, Sophie, we interrupted there. Uh, no, I, you know, I was just saying the, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't really know, um, who, yeah, if there are any solid numbers, but just anecdotally, um, it, it really was the most incredible density here. And I, I actually think it's amazing that, that in this day and age, we still have the density we have. Uh, and I think, I think that's due to cultural reasons here. A lot of people in this part of the world, it's taboo to eat game meat. So whereas in other parts of Africa, particularly West Africa, people, you know, it's a delicacy and everyone munches on what they can get hold of. People here, yes, have coexisted with it much more. So I think that's why today um, we're able to be conservationists because there's something left to conserve. Yeah, that's that's the important point, isn't it? It's been there. You're hanging on to last vestiges mm. of huge populations, but uh, are really trying to reverse those figures in a positive way. Yes, sure. you know, and as, as as much as we, you know, as much as we can, and in a natural way as can, I think there's a big difference between here and southern Africa, um, because here all wildlife is a national asset. So the negative of that means the landowner can't directly benefit from, you know, from looking after that wildlife. But the positive is, it it means nobody puts fences up because they want to keep their lions there or their kudu there or whatever. Um, and it means it's it's actually a still a much more intact uh, ecosystem that manages itself. So I think that that has huge positives, especially when it comes to climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not been disrupted, and therefore it's it's more adaptable in itself. Yeah, yeah. The ecosystems. Yeah. Um, we kind of really should perhaps talk about Lewa House. Um, and where you are, for those that don't know, um, you're lying on the northern side of Mount Kenya there, um, up towards, well, with the Mathrakeus ranges out to the north. Um, can you explain a little bit more about the location of the house, about the location of Lewa? Yeah, so, so Lewa is um, sort of on this funny transition area. We are technically a part of Meru County Council, um, you know, we're 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 within the Meru County Council borders, um, so we're we're although we're often classed with Laikipia um, in Kenya, we're we're actually not part of Laikipia. We're down off the plateau, and from an ecological point of view, we are this transition zone between the Laikipia plateau and the Samburu ecosystem. So low, dry, hot country um, to to our north. And so for us, that's quite interesting because we have this real mix of environments. We have um, uh, cedar forests, the Ngarindari forest, which is, is technically not part of Lewa. It actually is uh, forestry land um, and uh, the community protect it, but they've asked to fence it into Lewa to protect it further. Um, but it's an amazing um, in ecosystem in there. It almost feels like you're in the Congo. Then you transition down onto these um, acacia studded plains um, and then if you go to the northern part of Lewa, you're starting to get into, you know, almost Samburu ecosystem-like um, environment down there. And um, the, the house itself, Lewa House, is 
we're almost smack bang right in the middle of the conservancy and uh, we're on a hill uh, we face towards the north and um, but we also on one side of the hill get uh, very good views of mount kenya so often when we're having breakfast on the lawn in the morning you get these amazing uh, views of the snow-capped mount kenya so again it's quite unusual to be in your shorts and t-shirts in warm weather with elephants and lions and things cruising around but they've got this backdrop of this snow-capped mountain fantastic so yeah. it's it's quite it's a it's a stunning place <laughs> and can you describe some of the accommodation there how many rooms you've got and the styles of the different rooms you've got a couple of different styles of rooms and a main house of course yeah Soph, do you want to explain that um yeah so we've got so the main house is about 40 years old and it was actually uh built by a conservationist called Halvor Astrup when we started rhino conservation here so we Callum and I took it over and turned it into a lodge um so that we could generate income for the for the conservation here so we at maximum we sleep 18 people um and some of the some of our cottages have have two rooms to them and they're sort of really great for families and then other cottages are just just for two two people um but the the yeah the cottages are all spread out and then we we all tend to congregate in the in the main house and catch up with everyone what's happened happened during the day so um yeah it's it's fun it's the, the, the styles are quite different of room yes so we uh we've got the original rooms here which which was of which are three and they're thatched and um yeah they're they're and cottages separate yeah. separate cottages and then we, and then when we came yeah. here we uh we built these what we call our earth pods um mainly because the the original cottages are built out of cedar um and you just can't get that cedar anymore uh all the forestry harvesting is closed now yeah. um so we had to think of a a, di of a different form of architecture and we really wanted very organic buildings that blended in so we went very modern so juxtaposition the sort of older rustic with the uh, yeah w with something more modern but still very still very earthy still very grounded and we had a writer staying and he was like oh you can't call these cottages you have to call them earth pods so <laughs> <laughs> nine years later they're still earth pods <laughs> So when you when you see a photo of them, they're they're very unusual in their style. You know, we always say they're a, um, a third Hobbit, a third Star Wars with a bit of Gaudi thrown in, and um, they're actually designed and built by uh, Sophie's father. Um, he grew up at the coast here in Kenya at a place called Matwapa, yeah. and they went through a phase of uh, building um, boats out of ferro cement at the coast. And he saw this as a young man, these these boats being made out of cement. And he'd always had this idea, why hasn't somebody taken that and turned it upside down and made it into a house? And so when um, he's been a, a builder, his his father was in the building trade. Uh, Dave, Sophie's father, he he was in the in the, a builder as well. And so when he retired, he came up with this style of building, which is very smooth, very organic. Um, we clad it on rock on the outside. There are no straight lines. Everything's a curve. And so uh, from a distance, when you look back at the lodge, these rooms actually disappear into the landscape. He wanted to build a house that looked like a pile of rocks, basically. Um, and also with the cement roof, we're able to harvest all the rainwater off the roof. So we're able to um, uh, use that water uh, during the season for washing the floors, doing all that kind of stuff. And then uh, we, we use all of our nice spring water for, for, for drinking. Yeah, perfect. 
<laughs> my wife's an architect, so I can understand where he's coming from and conservation of right, uh, yeah. <laughs> water yeah. and other things like that. Ahead of his time, perhaps. Very much so, very much so. Uh, what, 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 one of the impressions we get is that people don't want to leave Labour House. <laughs> can you explain why? <laughs> I, I, Soph might have a different view, view to me. I, I think you can never quite put your finger on it, you know, and and um, one of the things, one of the factors that I think in it is that, that it feels like home here. Like you, it's it's our house. Lewa House is our home. And so we live here, whether there are guests or not. It's not like we're a management couple um, who have been hired in by a company to to manage the property. And then when it closes, we leave. This is our property. You know, we, we, we own it, we live here, we manage it, we host it. And it definitely has that homely feel about it. And so, you know, people always come as guests, but then they leave as friends. And, you know, more often than not, they say, oh, it's just like having people around to stay. You know, it's, it's, it's got a really good atmosphere about it. Yeah. And I think part of it might also be, um, we've got some pretty amazing archaeology here on Lewa. Um, there's an area not far away, about maybe two kilometers from here down on the plains. We actually overlooked these plains um, where we find stone tools down there. And these stone tools are, are half a million to a million years old. I was going to explore that with the UNESCO World Heritage status as well later on. Yeah, definitely. So I think the fact that that is there and that these people, you know, have, uh, you know, humanity evolved here. I think this landscape just sort of resonates with people. It's got a nice feel to it, the landscape itself. Reminds me of the book by Peter Matheson of uh, The Tree Where Man Was Born. That There is that connection yes. by being in East yeah. Africa with uh, early man and, you know, our roots, as it were. Definitely. You know, people, people feel it when we go down to that area and, and talk about it. By the end of it, people are there going, yeah, that's exactly what it was, you know. The French called it, was it mal d'Afrique, you know, the Africa sickness, that once you'd been once, you had to keep on coming back. And <laughs> I think that sort of genetic memory probably uh, plays a part in that, you know, that uh, things resonate slightly differently here. Yeah, I think they do resonate like that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're known as um, a really family-friendly, relaxed atmosphere, and that's not always easy to get across, is it? It's for for a number of properties, and the ones that certainly the places that we like using for clients is something that's homely, relaxed, um, but stimulating environment as well. Definitely. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with it there. Yeah, no, we're we're fortunate that it's that it's private land, you know, so we're able to um, get out of the vehicles, so we can walk, we can horse ride, we can. There's there's a lot of different things to be done here, so it's not all game drive, game drive, game drive. Um, and the fact that we're right in the middle of the conservancy also means that people can come back here and relax during the day. You know, it's not like once you're out, you're out all day. You can actually sort of come back and. And, uh, and really relax into it, So, um, which is particularly nice at the end of a safari. Uh, people are, uh, sometimes we see people falling asleep in the cars, you know, because they're not wanting to miss out on anything, you know, that fear of missing out. And we say, well, just one morning, take, take a morning off, you know, and, and uh, uh, sit down by the pool because we've got the water hole in front of the house. And so there's a lot of game coming through and just have a lie in, have a rest, breakfast, and then maybe head out afterwards and you feel completely reinvigorated. And do you get many people coming purely just to unwind like that as well? We, we do. We... I know you're a safari destination, but it seems the perfect place to come and unwind. Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, we tend to find some of our longer stay guests will do it. You know, So we actually have people who come and stay for a week, 
sometimes even up to 12 days we've had people staying with us. Um, and they're, they're, they're obviously keen on the wildlife, but then they want to spread it out a little bit more. So yeah, maybe not head out every single morning and maybe take an afternoon off and catch up with emails or, or whatever it may be. So you, you can actually sort of live here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we explain you? Well, let's go back, carry on with the safari side of things then, because you do, you mentioned you've got a lot of activities that you can do. You run through them, um, waterfall jumping, the canopy bridge walks, um, <laughs> community interactions, walking with you, Callum, a, a human prehistory. Yeah. Camel riding, horse riding. It just, the list goes on. For sure. You got an extraordinary list for a, a one safari destination. Destination. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's a lot to be done. And, and, you know, and then on top of that, obviously there's all the, what we call the conservancy activities. So, um, the Lewa wildlife conservancy itself has its headquarters obviously here and, um, uh, down by our airstrip and they're able to get the bloodhound anti-poaching tracker dogs to do demonstrations, you know, go and visit a school that the Lewa conservancy supports or a women's micro credit scheme or an adult literacy class. There's, there's a lot to be done. And, and a big part of that is because we want guests to get out of the car. Um, you shouldn't be stuck in the car the whole time. Um, you need to get out and about. And one of the ways you can do that is walking with you. That's your favorite passion, I think, isn't it? That, that's my favorite passion. You know, I, my parents made the mistake of giving me um, the, the book by Gerald Durrell, you know, My Family and Other Animals when I was about, uh, you know, yeah. 11 or 12 years old. And uh, I, I read that and I saw so many parallels between his life and my life. You know, I was constantly filling boxes full of spiders and beetles and terrifying my two <laughs> big sisters and, and all this kind of stuff. So that, uh, that, that set me on this course. I ended up going to... I, th I think we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up going to Aberdeen University and studying zoology and I graduated from that and then fell into the whole safari side of things. Um, so I ended up going down to South Africa and doing uh, my my walking, my trails guide uh, qualifications down there. Uh, and then I came up to Kenya to the Maasai Mara. And yeah, I spent about four years in the Mara leading a lot of walks there from a camp called Elephant Pepper Camp. Um, and so I just love it. Yeah. You know, there's no better way. Your, your senses come alive. You know, you look at every bush with a bit of suspicion, you know, as to what's hiding behind it, you know, and uh, your smell seems to get heightened. Your sense of hearing gets heightened. You're looking at tracks and dung and um, all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the way to experience it. I certainly know where you're coming from because I walked through past a bush out of Elephant Pepper Camp with a with a pride of lions in it. We didn't even know they were there until we were coming back. <laughs> As, honestly, when when I was down there, every other walk that we did, we saw lions. I've ne I've never seen anything like it. It's the density of lions down there is crazy, and they don't care about people. It's absolute madness. Yeah. You know, you just walk along. They sort of we saw this lioness lying between these two bushes. Um, and she had her back to us, you know, and so we were trying to make a bit of noise so that she knew that we were there. And we decided we were going to make a bit of an approach on her. So we, we walked towards her again, sort of talking loudly, making sure she knew we were there. She rolled over very casually and sort of looked over her shoulder at us while lying on her back um, and then flopped back down again and just ignored us. And then all of a sudden, we saw these three little furry heads poke up above her belly, and she was suckling her cubs. <laughs> so it was like, right, time to go. You know? <laughs> time to go. But she honestly couldn't give two hoots. You know, it was, it was crazy. It was absolute madness. 
let's explore a little bit more of the walking around Lewa then. So we have a number of uh, valleys here on Lewa um, to, that, that run basically north-south, um, so uh, away from the mountain. And uh, quite a few of these valleys don't actually have any roads going into them. So, and there's no way for a vehicle to access it. So the only way in is on foot now, be it on horseback uh, or your own, your own um, two feet. Um, and so we do uh, the majority of our walking in these remoter valleys to, to the north of Lewa. Um, and I, I can, you know, we vary them because, as you said, we get a lot of families coming along, uh, sometimes slightly um, more elderly people who, who might want to go for a shorter walk. So we do anything from an hour to a full day, yeah. you know, or a short half an hour walk for kids or whatever it may be. Um, we tend to prefer the early mornings just when it's a bit cooler. So we'll, we'll get up early, we'll drive out, we'll get dropped off, we'll walk for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, however long it is, um, and then uh, get picked up at the end of it. And we, we cover a little bit of everything, really. You know, we try and mix it up. So geology, you know, a bit of botany, uh, archaeology, if there is any on the walk, um, as well as the big stuff. But, you know, we always say to people, right, the big animals are the bonus. Yeah. Uh, the aim of these things is the small stuff, the stuff that you're not going to get from the car, um, just so that people know what to expect from it. And quite often we see the big stuff. You know, we often get up close to rhinos and elephants and things like this. But um, it's uh, definitely the focus is on the the smaller, lesser seen things. But I think one of the big things that comes from walking safaris is the tightening of the senses that you have uh, from being out there on your own two feet in the bush, isn't it? It's definitely your awareness is increased as to everything. A hundred percent. You know, by the time you've got to the end of the walk, you know, most of our guests are already able to tell what an ox pecker sounds like, you know. So, you know, we say, right, that's an alarm call. That now means that there's some large mammal over there, you know. And so we go into explaining how we can read the environment, um, much like somebody who's living in a city can read their environment. Um, you know, and I said, they, everybody goes, is it really dangerous? And you're going, well, no, not really. You know, actually, if you if you know what you're looking for and you go to the right areas, it's it's not that dangerous. You know, it's just like I wouldn't go into certain parts of large cities because I know that they're dangerous, you know, yeah. or uh, I know that the red man means stop and the green man means walk. <laughs> you know, they're exactly the same sort of uh, crossing the road. They're, they're, they're exactly the same sort of signals out there in the bush as long as you're you're aware of it. And they slowly get to get to grips with it over the course of the walk, you know, and it's, uh, it's really nice seeing people learning to relax into that environment and uh, learn to appreciate it. I think what uh, also comes from this is our connection with nature is uh, becomes more apparent perhaps on foot, but certainly from being out in the Conservancy or somewhere like that. Um, how's that something that you try to instill in people, that connection? I think Sophie, in one of the videos that I've seen, has elegantly put it, um, of it being a mosaic and that we're just one small part of it. I think it's... It's such a nice um, thing. We go on safari quite often just to look at the wildlife and see the different animals. And yeah, it'd be great to see the black rhino up there and we can talk more about those shortly. But it's our connection with nature that's really brings it all home to us, I think. Yeah, I think, um, I actually think as, as humanity, we need that. And I think as the world's become more and more urbanized, I think that's why people come. I mean, why else would people come <laughs> if if they don't feel they're maybe lacking that lacking that connection maybe subconsciously um but i having grown up in this environment and i've lived outside it um but it is something i personally have always felt uh very strongly 
and and I think again, you know, what you're talking about with Callum with with being on foot when you are uh, immersed in it uh, on your own two feet, um, then you yeah you 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 realize that you've got to you've got to be a part of it and you've got to work with it um and i and i think yeah you just end up with an attitude which is yeah i am i am part of this i'm not something that's removed from it i'm not something that knows better or um it, it just teaches you great humility i think yeah for sure yes i'd agree with you there do you think also that sometimes it's quite shocking and that brings um, raw nature back to people as well? Yeah, I think very much so. I think I think because the natural world, the whole of life is laid out before you. You see something being born, you see something dying, um, you see every all the bits in between. And um, yeah, I think so much of our Western society, you know, the, those those parts of life are hidden. Uh, we're sort of we're not meant to talk about them. We're not meant to know about them. Uh, children's hamsters go to I don't know heaven or wherever they go, um, and uh, yeah. So I th I think for many people it's very grounding, and some people it's very shocking. They see a, a you know something being killed, and they're of course of course they're really upset. And we we often end up with these big conversations around the table about the circle of life and. Um, the fact that usually absolutely nothing is wasted everything is recycled um and you know we sort of discuss it and people get their heads around it and um yeah just become a bit more realistic realistic about about how life works including human life do you think then that those that type of person is actually lacking um or has the drive therefore to try and come and understand nature is that the reason why they come on safari i'm not sure that's necessarily so for that type of person is it it's it's an interesting there's an interesting conversation here that um we perhaps don't know the answers to yeah i yeah i don't i don't think it's as black and white but i think people often people say oh i've always wanted to come and and see this wildlife and i don't think they've ever thought about it that that deeply about why they want to come and see it it's just something they want to do um and um yeah and i and the, the other thing that actually flummoxes me is why people need to come here because there is wildlife and wilderness wherever you are even if you're in the middle of a city and what i find so interesting is you can open people's eyes to things here that they've never looked at before and they've never bothered to look at at home even if it is on their doorstep and a classic example is actually birds um a lot of people come oh i'm coming to see the wildlife and then they get here and like you know what the birds are really amazing and i i'm not i'm not a twitcher but the birds are really amazing and um and they, they are often if you keep up a conversation with that person you find that you know they've gone home and they've started it's actually seeing the birds in their gardens they've never even their eyes have just never been open to it before and yeah, i think that's a really sure. cool thing <laughs> sophie you're talking to me i i've been out in kenya a number of times and then i was traveling around the country with stefano kelly of kelly and peacock who we were talking about earlier yeah. with elephant pepper camp and stefano is a big bird uh, and yeah. he completely yeah. opened my eyes to it and i came back from visiting kenya with him once and i thought I better start learning about European birds and what we've got at home. 
things like that. I spent my, I spent my life running up mountains. Well, you, and, you know, I had to come to Kenya to open my yeah. eyes to birds and things. But now, yeah, wherever I go, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm equally, I'm not twitching, but I'm, I'm interested and keen to see yeah. the different species and the variety. I think nature in yeah. its yeah. diversity is just an incredible thing. So. Yeah. No, for sure. You know, we, we, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very rewarding thing. Yeah. We, we sometimes have guests who, um, you know, the flip side of it is, is that they've, um, you know, they've seen all these National Geographic TV shows and obviously they want to come and experience it for themselves, you know, and, and the, the big sort of, uh, I don't know, was a polarizing thing is often the wildebeest migration. So, you know, sometimes we're at the start of somebody's safari, sometimes we're at the end. Now, often if we're at the end of the safari, they've they've been to Tanzania to see the, the wildebeest migration or they've been in the Mara and they've seen it and they come up and I said, well, how was that? You know, and they said, well, you know what? I wanted to see it my entire life. I never want to see it again <laughs> because it's such a traumatic event. You know, these these wildebeest are drowning each other. You know, they're breaking legs. The crocs are taking them and you get so involved in it as a person watching it. You know, and it's funny how you always focus in on just a few animals as they're swimming across and follow their fortunes, you know, as if it weren't. And it's, it's emotionally draining, you know. And so by the time you've finished with it, it's like, oh, God, no, I don't want to do that again, you know, and, and uh, they, 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 they come back and, uh, and just want to relax. It was a similar thing. So far. I don't know if you remember, but we were, we had this chap in the Mara who turned up for breakfast and um, he was looking a little bit pale, but we didn't think anything of it. And we offered him a, a great, a great big sort of um, a dish of sausages that we had cooked up, you know, as part of, um, as part of breakfast. And he sort of took one look at the sausages and goes, no, 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 I can't. And we said, <laughs> well, why not? You know, you're vegetarian. Sorry, have we got it wrong? And he goes, no, no. He says, I just saw the hyenas take down a wildebeest. And for those people who are listening that don't know, it's it's not a particularly pleasant process because the, the wildebeest right. basically eviscerate the animal and eat it while it's still alive. And um, the, the sausages had reminded him of the guts of the wildebeest, you know, <laughs> so he couldn't eat at all. And so after the meal, he turned around, he says, I'm sorry, but can I go back to the wildebeest? Because we had to leave before they had actually finished. Um, and so we sent him back out there and he came back much to leave. And we said, you know, what's up? And he goes, well, I went back. There is nothing left. He says it has been eaten completely. And he says, actually, that makes me feel so much better about the whole thing. Can I have my sausages now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I have my sausages? <laughs> uh, he, he'd seen that whole transition, you know, and, and the whole animal being used. And that that was it. It was fine. You know, he was he was happy with it. Yeah. So. That's no, good. Thank goodness birding isn't like that, eh? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Birds are. When you start watching birds, they're vicious. <laughs> they can be. And they fight each other. They're little dinosaurs. <laughs> they're little dinosaurs. Yeah. 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 I saw this amazing footage of a, an eagle's eye blinking yesterday. Um, somebody had shot it in slow motion, and seeing the, the eyelid not actually moving. And the, the, the protective, you know, sclera or whatever it is that came from the center of the eye, whether, you know, yeah. from the, the, the beak side across horizontally, I'd never seen that before. And that was very, you know, dinosaur-like. That was mind-blowing. I loved that. Should we move on and let's talk a little bit more about, well, actually, I, I think we should go back and talk. You mentioned when you first came to the area or when your great-grandfather first came to the area and they were laying out the land for agriculture primarily. Um, 
obviously the local populations around there, around this yellow now, have really grown up and you have a lot of community work that you're doing with them. Can you describe some of the projects that, uh, that you're taking on there from Labour House? Yep. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my great-grandfather, he, he sort of sought local knowledge, so he learnt the local languages so he could communicate with people and seek their knowledge. So actually where Leira is now um, was sort of traditionally Meru grazing ground. So the Miru people are a subsistence people. They tend to live higher up the mountain in the forest. Um, but when it was, it was, you know, suitable down here, they would, they would move some of their animals down here. Um, so he, you know, he learned from them, but really you have to remember when he, you know, when he came here, the, the whole population of Kenya, they reckon was 2 million people. Um, and we're now pretty much at 50. Um, yeah, so that the Brits came here and they just walked on. There wasn't, there isn't really a big history of fighting or moving people off or a, a sort of American West history here because the the human population is just so low that. Or even the Scottish clearances. <laughs> yeah, or even the Scottish clearances. People just, yeah, um, people just walked on really. Um, but as he, you know, he he settled here and because he made he really relied on on local people for for their knowledge and their help so he built up relationships um that are still continuing to this day where you know the generations of us that have all grown up you know side by side as neighbors yeah and uh, we all we all still know each other and we all still help each other out so Lewa's community programs um are, are an extension of that so my grandparents started uh, schools in the 50s and started sponsoring uh, children. My grandfather was a great believer of education and um, he started sponsoring uh, people through school and um, so that yeah over the years has now expanded and I think they're now I think 10,000 children in Lewa sponsored schools. I mean it has a huge impact. Wow. I think it's 40 schools now. Yeah. That's very impressive. Yeah. That, that's seriously impressive number isn't it yeah it is it is a huge it is a huge program and then in addition to that they do so at the lay sponsor school they are now government schools um but labor sort of subs them and um yeah. and provides sort of facilities like libraries and stuff like that but as as part of it they do sort of make sure there is quite a lot of emphasis on conservation and sustainability um and, and so the kids going through those schools are, are coming out with absolutely with knowledge that their education is thanks to the the wildlife being here um, and, and often with an appreciation of it and, and a real need to give back. We find we actually get a lot of people coming up through the lower education system who you know who are looking for jobs and that's really amazing because in this in this country at the moment there's such an urbanization happening and if people have an education they get to the cities and they think wow i've made it i'm someone and they really look down upon uh the the rural more rural people so for for people who've gone through the labor education system gone off you know got their qualifications and, and to want to come back here is really is really saying something um so as well as schools, uh, there are clinics um, around the place and they've got yeah amazing facilities and they provide a lot of, 
Yeah, a, lo a lot of, um, yeah, sort of first stage treatment. Um, there is a doctor that goes around them. He's not there all the time, but he go goes around them all um, at, on various different days. And that's, you know, they do a huge amount of education as well. So community health education um, and mothers and babies clinics and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and people come a long way for those. They, yeah, they often walk a long, long way for those clinics. Uh, then there's um, the microcredit schemes, which is like a lot of microcredit schemes limited to women because um, women tend not to drink the money, which is what often happens with the men. <laughs> um, and yeah, so, so women can uh, create their own little businesses. And so the idea is really to, to, to make people self-sustaining. And actually Callum and I, the other day, we... We went, there were also adult literacy programs because often a lot of the older generation didn't really go to school or didn't have much time at school. So literacy is a big issue and often now their own kids are at school, but they can't read anything. They can't keep an eye on their own, what their own children are up to. So people are very keen on, on literacy. And uh, Callum and I went along, we met some women who'd been through that program and then they had um, been, been taught tailoring skills and they all have their own little tailoring shops now, but they've all come uh, back to labor with this COVID situation and they're sort of donating their time making masks for, for the communities around. So it was actually great to see because they're, they're people who've been supported by Lewa. They've reached a point where they're able to um, self-sustain, have their own income and not only that, but then have the resources available to, to donate their time and their skills back, which yeah, is, is, yeah, is quite something. Yeah, it's empowering to see that, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah. It's well, perhaps not empowering is the right word, but it's certainly rewarding to see that. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, you know, it's sort of going along the right track because you you want people to be um, you know, able to stand on their own feet and um, yeah. So we we really don't want a dependency culture. So it's it's good when you know things like this happen because that's when you really see the truth of the matter and 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 how it's going so yeah it was really it was great to see that and and the fact that they've come back to work for their own community as well which is yeah 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 particularly um heartening yes yes no so it's um yeah they was very much at the core of a core of of communities um I'd also say that, uh, you know, Lewa, Lewa the, the, one of the theories has also been that, you know, Lewa can't exist in isolation. You know, the Conservancy, we are actually on the boundary between four different tribes here. So we have uh, the, the, the Meru people, the Kimeru people on one side, the Kikuyu people, the Samburu and the Maasai, uh, as well as a smattering of other sort of smaller tribes around about us. Um, and from a wildlife uh, security point of view, so trying to protect the, the wildlife here, if the communities around us can see so much benefit from Lewa, then they are also more likely to protect um, the wildlife that's here. So, for example, if anybody wants to come on and try and poach a rhino, they have to pass through the communities around us before they even get to the edge of Lewa. Yeah. And uh, those communities are, you know, seeing so much, you know, their kids in the in a Lewa school, maybe on a Lewa scholarship, they if they get ill, they go to a, a Lewa clinic. You know, the the mother might have a micro credit scheme from the the Lewa um, um, scheme there, and the the husband might be a ranger here on Lewa. You know, and so uh, 
if that person has to go through that group of people, they're not going to let it happen. No, of course. <laughs> and so, because uh, they don't want their their their, their li- livelihoods to be affected. So, and it, and it works. It really does work very very well. We will leave the first part of our interview here, as next week it will be appropriate to pick up on more from Labour Wildlife Conservancy, in which Sophie and Callum live with their young family. It's been a great pleasure talking with them, and I hope you will join us next week to conclude their story. In the meantime, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. And if you've any comments, then do email me at podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. Wildlife and Wilderness is at all protected.